Hello, and welcome to Pine of Science Ireland podcast. I'm Peter Labrocky-Cox, bringing you extended cuts of the Science Festival taking place in pubs across Ireland as part of the International Pint of Science. Today, we are joined by Dr. Kleena Nikialik, who looks at the effects of poverty on health and well-being. A disclaimer that this episode was recorded in St. James's Hospital, so there were some unavoidable background noises. I have to say, this has been one of the most illuminating conversations I have had on this podcast. I was blown away by just how much poverty is hurting those people forgotten by the system, and as a result, the system itself. I hope you find this conversation as fascinating as I did. Grab a pint. It's starting. Hello, Kleena. Thank you so much for joining us. It's really nice to be here with you. Thanks so much. It's it's a real pleasure to get to waffle on to a captive audience. Can you give us an overview of your current work and how you got to where you are now? might take about five hours to answer, so sit down and get comfortable. So I'm a doctor and I worked here in James's as an intern in my first year. It was pretty eye-opening in that a lot of the patients in the hospital because of where we're situated, come from quite poor backgrounds. And a lot of the patients use drugs. And that kind of sparked it. That was my gateway. Then I decided to specialise in infectious diseases. Again, because there's a big overlap between social factors and kind of medical things. So infectious diseases shape human history. So like TB, for example, TB is fascinating. And it um, used to be known as the Great White Plague. It killed one in seven adults throughout Western Europe right up until the kind of mid 1800s. So has had a really strong influence on our history. And if you look in art and history, loads of people died of consumption, as they used to call it. So I liked infectious diseases for that reason, that it would kind of combine the social and the medical. Then I worked here in James's as when I started specialising in that and I worked in HIV medicine. HIV drugs are like this amazing research success story. So it's so cool that this disease that killed huge chunks of certain groups in society in the 80s and 90s research then delivered these medications that basically restore somebody's health back to where it should have been. So there's research nowadays that people who have HIV and take their meds, they live 10 years longer than their counterparts who don't have HIV. So it's it's like this like magic medicine, basically. But we had a small number of patients, mostly young men from the local area. You can actually see the flats where they live often from the hospital who didn't come into clinic. And you can only get HIV meds in a HIV clinic. So they didn't come into clinic. They didn't get their meds. Their HIV got worse, they got AIDS and they died mostly during that first year that I was in training. Um, And HIV medicine in Ireland is free. So it wasn't a, a case of the cost of the medication being a barrier. So that really set me on this path of, I suppose, trying to figure out what it is in how we structure society, how we interact with each other, how we provide healthcare. What is it that means that some people have experienced lots of preventable suffering and die young? And then I met, there's a GP who works in Dublin called Austin O'Carroll, and I was at an event with him and he was talking about what way do doctors need to deliver clinics to make sure that people who don't normally come to clinic come. And for me, it was this light bulb moment of like, oh, like the problem isn't necessarily in the patient the problem is in us in what we're doing and it not matching that's fascinating stuff really great the first thing that jumps into my head is when you talk about people who don't have hiv having shorter life expectancy than people who do but take the medication does that mean we should all just be taking hiv medication all the time 
I don't think so. So actually, that's a really good question. But no, I think it's related to other factors because the medicine works so well and then they're coming in and getting their blood pressure checked and their cholesterol checked as part of their HIV care. So is there a specific angle that you come at in medicine? Is there, is there a particular area that you look at at the moment? Or is it kind of just a more broad, how do we get people who are kept out of the system into the system? That's a really good question. And actually, I probably hadn't thought of it in those terms. But if I think about it, for me, what it comes down to is how a person's sense of self affects how they can access healthcare. A lot of the people that we would work with have experienced severe adversity in childhood. So often they'll have been neglected and abused. And that really fundamentally, to some level, has broken their trust in other human beings and has also damaged their sense of themselves as something worthy of looking after. Back at the start of this journey in, on the HIV wards, one of the things that struck me was if we looked at our patients' teeth, the, the teeth of the people who were having difficulty engaging in care, frequently they had teeth in very poor condition or no teeth at all in their 30s, right? Which isn't common in society. But if you think about what you do when you brush your teeth, you're doing it because you want to have healthy teeth for your future self and you're seeing yourself as worthy of that care. So I think it's a really good illustration for me about how some people's lives have been so difficult that things that the rest of us take very much for granted like brushing our teeth cannot kind of not work or not be working and I think if you unpick that a little bit a lot of it comes down to a sense of shame and a sense of being seen as less than by other people so for me it's very much about trying to understand how those kind of social interactions early in life in particular but throughout people's lives how they affect their their psychology and their behaviors and then how that affects their health society tends to see poverty or uh, addiction or any of those other things as a moral failing so that person didn't work hard enough they didn't get up early enough in the morning and and they've brought it on themselves they've chosen that if we scientifically look at how poverty happens, we can see that that's not the case, that it's about the structures that are in place. Really sad and also fascinating. And I also imagine then in aiming to allow people who don't traditionally interact with the healthcare systems, if you can do that in a positive way, you're also mitigating future generations as well, right? Because you're reducing childhood trauma. So it's a long-term solution. Absolutely. Often the people that we work with, we can't save their lives. We can't prolong their lives. We might just be able to give them a decent death in hospital with their family there and their pain managed and everybody feeling respected. And that's obviously important for the person who's dying. But I hope that it's maybe lessening that burden that their family members have to take and carry with them. And I think if we're coming back to research, how do we measure that? So in healthcare, we often look at things called qualies, quality adjusted life years. So say a new drug, a drug for cystic fibrosis, it's allowed to cost, I don't know, 30,000 euros a year. I'm making the figure up per quali. So for additional year of life that that person will have adjusted for their quality of life. But we're not able to measure longer term outcomes and we don't measure the outcome beyond the individual. So I think if we want to really understand where to spend money in healthcare and in society in general, we need to have ways that measure the impact longer term on the community. I suppose the thing that jumps to mind from what you were talking about is the concept of scarcity mindset. I wonder if you could maybe explain briefly what that means to our audience and also how that influences the people that you're trying to reach. Having the sense of there not being enough 
that you're going to run out. On one level, it takes your focus and your thought power away from things that are longer term because you're focused on that day-to-day survival. When you're living in a situation of scarcity, it is quite hard to be altruistic and think about the community because you're focused on, on your survival. And I think the most pressing scarcity that I work with at the moment is housing. We're probably 30 to 40,000 properties short for the need in Dublin. So no matter what way you divvy up, there's still going to be lots of people who really need housing who aren't housed. And it, it reminds me of musical chairs. So it's always going to be in a scarce situation, the people who have the least resources who don't get a chair so people with disabilities people who don't come from a wealthy family background whose parents can't help them out people who don't have the same social networks they're always the people that are going to be left out if there's not enough chairs I find it fascinating sometimes in the political debate about housing you know oh well homeless people use drugs whatever there's it's multifactorial it is but ultimately unless you have enough physical properties to meet the number of people that need those properties you're going to run into trouble. So it's very simple mathematics. In your research, you talk about chronological age and biological age. So I suppose most of us would think of age as being age. Could you maybe describe the differences between those and why that's important? So again, this is something I learned about, oh, maybe five, seven years ago from working with TILDA, the Irish Longitudinal Study on Aging. And again, it's it's one of those light bulb moments. So Basically, not every 90-year-old is like another 90-year-old. So we all probably know some 90-year-olds who are really independent, healthy, have muscles, look after themselves, don't have memory problems, are basically, you know, bopping around, having a great life. And then we know 60-year-olds who look like they are 90, who have all the medical problems that a 90-year-old has. And so that was kind of one thing, is this concept that We're not all exactly the age it says on our tin. And then if you look at people who are poor, you can see that they get older quicker. And there's lots of ways to know that. The people that I work with who are socially excluded, so that's people who've experienced homelessness, prison, drug use, foster care in childhood, have really had lives that have some of the same things that people who are poor experience but much more of those difficulties they look really old and so if we look at them in a hospital setting they're coming in in their 30s with you know pneumonia or foot ulcers or heart attacks things that you really shouldn't be seeing in people in their 30s and 40s so the research suggests that being poor speeds up your aging process by about five years but being socially excluded so having these really difficult life experiences you're talking 30 to 40 years of speeded up life and so when you look at who can go to say clinics for older people you have to be 65 to get those services but the people that we work with need those services in their 40s and it's really interesting in Australia they have done a lot of work with people who are aboriginal right because they would have had a lot of similar difficulties and they're allowed to use services for over 65s once they turn 40 so it's really interesting to look in a different setting but the same phenomenon and I would be really keen that services in Ireland took a similar approach so say travellers and people who've experienced homelessness all of those type of things that they would allow people to access those services at a younger age which is when they need it. No and I suppose that really feeds into what you were talking about before with like people thinking that poverty or or drug addiction are moral issues. When you're poor it's harder, right? Like it's harder to get out of poverty because you have all these other things to think about. It makes me think of the, the belief that Aborigines 
Native Americans and even Irish people were predisposed to be alcoholics. Or if you just take everything from people, maybe they drink because that's all they have to do, you know, those kind of things. Absolutely. And I think like that's such a brilliant point. And if you look at what those experiences have in common, and yes, I would include Irish people in that, you know, it's a lack of access to job opportunities and education. It's a feeling of being less than and, and legally often being made less than. Same for black people in the US where you're not seen as an equal citizen. And then that results in, in those feelings of shame and loss of control. So there's this really cool concept in psychology called locus of control. And that's around how much do you feel, how much control do you feel you have over your own life? And if you think about an Aboriginal kid in Australia who was taken from their family against their family's will, put into a boarding school, put into prison, they don't choose when they sleep. They don't choose what they eat. They don't choose where they go. They don't choose what they do. They don't choose who they spend time with. All of those experiences of really having your, your ability to choose for yourself, they result in really profound psychological harm that then people self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. Yeah, and you're so right. And it's seen as a moral failing. And I suppose that's what makes me angry is you see that on an individual level and you see it on a societal level. I mean, where do we spend money? Do we put the money that's needed into addiction services, into prisons, into schools and deprived areas? We don't. And if you took the morality out of it, you would say from an economic point of view, that's where you should be spending the money in order to to save money later. But we don't do it because we kind of think that people should just stop being bold. And in a way, it comes back to some of the HIV stuff where if we look at the early history of HIV, there was a lot of effort and money spent on abstinence-based methods. And you know, I think to me, it's so striking in the 80s and 90s, loads and loads of gay men were dying and all their friends were dying from AIDS and they still had sex because that's a basic human drive. And you have to respect humans' basic drives or whatever intervention you're going to do ain't going to work. So, yeah, less morality and more research showing where it's efficient to spend money. Here, here. <laughs> uh, so somebody can have one thing that makes it harder for them to go to a healthcare service when you have multiple factors does that just make it doubly as hard or does it multiply or like become like much much harder Absolutely. And that's a really good point. So it is, it multiplies, it doesn't add. So again, coming back to to homelessness, there is an over-representation. So you're more likely to become homeless if you have autism um, or if you have, if you're LGBTQI. And obviously, like nowadays, hopefully society is a bit less stigmatizing of people who are LGBTQI. So you would hope that, you know, in a family in which everything else is going fine and there are plenty of resources, that, you know, teenager comes out as being gay, it's no big deal, you know, everybody's fine with it, they go to college, life continues as normal. But if you look in a family where there is a lot of strain and stress and mental ill health and addiction and poverty and, you know, already feeling outside of society, they may not be able to support that young person and that young person may have to leave the parental home and go into homelessness. So it's very much about, it's you know, one term is intersectionality. It's about having more than one. So for example, within the traveling community, using drugs is very stigmatized. So if you find, if you're working with a traveler who uses drugs, they are really, really, really socially excluded and have very difficult lives. Yeah, it's multiplying. So within our health and social care systems, where do you see the biggest failings in inclusion? Like where do you think the biggest problems lie? On a systems level in Ireland, because of our post-colonial legacy, we have a system that is very fragmented. So unlike most other European countries, we don't have a single tier health service. 
and a lot of our services like schools and homeless charities and addiction services are provided by charities. So there are 24 different charities that look after homeless people in Dublin, many of which are run from a religious background, which is good in many ways and is very problematic at times when a lot of the people that we work with have been abused in religious institutions in their childhood. So so that concept of it's the priest's or nun's job to look after poor people, I think structurally has left us with a system in which it's quite difficult to come at things from a universal rights-based angle. So that's problem number one. So the, the second problem that I think we have is around it being the patient's job to fit the service rather than the other way around. And that's not unique to Ireland. That That's, I suppose, the kind of model of, of life that we all live in, in Western societies anyway, where there isn't much responsibility for each other. It's kind of every individual's job to sort themselves out. But I think that leads to problems in the health service where not everybody has equal abilities to sort themselves out in the way that they're supposed to. And again, that's just really showing us what we've talked about before, where it becomes harder the, with the more difficulties you have, the harder it is. And then it, it multiplies and accelerates itself and commands itself. There was a GP in Wales in the 1970s called Julian Tudor Hart, which is quite a cool name. And he came up with this thing called the law of inverse proportionality. And basically, it's the more you need healthcare, the harder it is for you to get it. That's compounded when you have privatization of healthcare. So the US being a really good example there. But it's crazy because it, the highest need will be the worst served. So the most deprived areas of Dublin, where we know there's the highest health need, have the fewest GPs per capita. Okay, so yeah, you're talking about inverse proportionality. How do we combat that? Like, do we just get rid of the private system? He asks, hopefully. I personally think that, yes, that is definitely part of it. The two-tier system doesn't, I would argue, do anybody any favours, including those who are accessing private health care. But that's not enough. So there's this really cute diagram that I use in talks it's like you know an equal play an equal start you will have one person who's really tall who can see over their fence one person who can kind of see over the fence and one person in a wheelchair so they can't see over the fence at all that's how we think our system is maybe what we actually have is a system where the person who's tall is standing on a box the person who's average is standing on the ground and the person who's in the wheelchair we've dug them a big hole um, and put them in it so that's that's our current model what I would argue for is proportionate universality, which is where the guy who's tall doesn't need anything. And then as you need extra height, you get an extra box or a ramp or whatever. And then ideally, and I'm not sure what that would look like, but ideally the final picture in that series is one in which there isn't a fence and which the people within the wheelchair can play sports as well. So that's the ultimate dream. But certainly what we need to be doing is recognising that in order to get equal outcomes for everybody, so equal life expectancy, equal access to palliative care when they're dying, uh, equal maternity outcomes, equal you know baby outcomes, equal all of those, in order to get equal health outcomes, we need to give some people much more support and resources than we do others. And at the moment, we're doing the reverse. So we're helping those who have the most. You were talking a bit before about charities, And I actually think that's a really interesting one to kind of think about. I think most people would think in in a perfect world, there'd be no need for charities. The state would take care of everything. And, you know, so I suppose what I want to ask is, do you think there's always going to be a place for charities in the public sector? Or do you think at some point we might get to the stage where we can move away from that? 
really good question. My husband is Finnish and I lived there and worked there for a year as a doctor. So that would be, I suppose, the system that I compare it to. They're coming from a very long tradition of socialism and they don't have charities involved in any of what charities are involved in in Ireland. So I think it's fantastic and it's more important and it's more efficient to have a rights-based approach where you don't have charities involved. But it is also important to have some kind of human kindness to each other. But I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. And I think that as long as it's charity based, there's this concept of the deserving poor, you know, like, oh, well, that homeless guy is nice. So we'll look after him because he's polite. But that homeless guy is really narky and cranky. So we won't look after him. It's not a personality test or a moral judgment. Everybody has rights to healthcare, And I think that that's what I like about the universal and rights based approaches. It doesn't come down to who you like and who you don't like. Coming back to the moral question again, always come. <laughs> yeah. Um. But no, I mean, it's, it's very important because historically, the vast majority of charity has been based on a moral thing. I mean, it's come from religion, which are all about what they consider to be morality. And, you know, if you look at the Irish famine, I mean, a lot of their responses, the follies that were built, all that was based around who morally deserves not to starve when just everybody deserves not to starve. So COVID-19, we had to get there at some point, I suppose. How has that affected the inclusivity of the healthcare system in Ireland or has it? So I think it held up a very stark mirror or x-ray or whatever metaphor you want to use. It, it really highlighted inequalities in the system. Um, and, and again, a good example of every infectious disease is also a social disease, right? Because they spread from person to person. And it was very clear at the start of the pandemic that things like not having access to sick pay, like in the meat factories, not having access to your own room to sleep in, so people living in direct provision in hostels, that all of those things created weaknesses or, or areas in which COVID could spread. Again, it's, it's almost like if you look at it from a purely economic and kind of amoral perspective it is in your interest to have everybody having access to what they need it's in everybody's interest one of the cool things about covid was i i mentioned austin o'carroll already who's this amazing very charismatic um gp he's put in work over many decades in creating a lot of systems of care around people in dublin who are homeless and use drugs and so when we could see covid on the horizon there was already a strong network that were already working together on multiple different things of people working with people who are homeless. And we were able to see the problem and get them out of the hostels quickly. So we were able to say, yes, we know that they're biologically much older than they look. So yeah, they're in their 30s. They're going to physically act as if they're in their 70s or 80s. They're in hostels, in rooms, sharing with another 20 people and COVID is spreading in the air. So we were able to respond to that and decongregate the hostels. And it was amazing, all the things that you're told are impossible putting people into their own room own key accommodation and uh, not having a cap on the number of people who can get on methadone so before covid you used to depending on where you lived you could wait up to 18 months two years to start on methadone which is crazy so suddenly there was no waiting list so all of that was possible so i think that covid showed that i think what it really showed to me and probably more than anything else i have seen makes me despair about the future of the human race was the lack of sharing of vaccines globally because that was something where there was essentially zero cost to those sharing all we needed to do was share the know-how on how to make the vaccine so they could be manufactured in poorer countries and we didn't and by doing that we did 
several things, one of which was saying, if you have black skin, we don't care if you die, because that's what we did. And one of them was also creating huge problems for ourselves, because all we did was leave huge amounts of virus circulating that mutated and came back and and spread here and evaded vaccines. So again, talking about that crazy workhouse morality actually being really dangerous for everybody, it was a really good example of that. I think actually a lot of the issue is that the system we have in place tends to benefit people who think selfishly. The people who tend to make the decisions on the high end are those people. I I don't think the vast majority of people would make that decision if they had the choice. I think so. And I think what really interests me there is, you know, like human life or human society, it's it's kind of like a game that we're all playing that we all agree common rules on. So like there is no abstract physical thing that says that you prioritize shareholder profit over human lives and global long-term economic interests like we don't have to do that and and it's up to us collectively then to say yeah okay every individual is going to be selfish so then we put rules in place no more than we do with many other things that you know there are rules that we all have to play with if we're going to live together yeah and the kind of the depressing thing for me is that i think most people aren't selfish. If you look at crisis scenarios, in most cases, people act incredibly unselfishly. And for whatever reason in our society, we've decided that success equals smart, not selfish. But in most cases, the people who succeed are the people who are willing to not live by the morals of everyday people. So maybe going back to what you're talking about with morality, we need to flip that script. It's not the poor people who are immoral rich (laughs) and absolutely and like this is something so like there is we've talked about a lot of sadness and a lot of things a lot of despair and a lot of anger but then there are all these things that that you see day to day that give you huge hope for humanity and like I've had patient after patient who have the most difficult lives with such scarcity and such adversity and they're looking out for somebody else on a ward if there's a homeless person and a person with dementia who out of all the people on the ward is looking out for the little old lady with dementia in the corner it's usually the homeless person who is next to nothing so there is something about the less we have maybe the more tuned in we are to other people who have less and and the more we share like face to face who would refuse to give a vaccine to somebody or who would make somebody suffer but it's just when we get into big enough groups and the other groups are far enough away we stop seeing them as people yeah that's a that's a classic human trait that's just classic tribalism but um anyway so i want to ask a question which i'm sure all specifically female doctors find very frustrating how does gender affect exclusivity that's a brilliant question absolutely brilliant question and actually it opens up about like five different things that i want now want to talk to you about Firstly, it's really interesting, right? So normally women live longer than men and normally women get like strokes, heart attacks, cancers, like all that type of stuff at a slightly older age than men. So there's an advantage there to being female. It is flipped when you're socially excluded. So homeless men in Dublin, the average age at which homeless single men die is 44 and homeless women, the average age is 38. So it's horrendously young. And it's also younger than men. And we would see that consistently, that 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 experience of being socially excluded on the edges, having that very difficult life is even worse for women than for men. I think there are multiple elements to that. One is women's identity is very much often tied up in in being a mother if they have children. And women who are socially excluded, most of the time their children are taken away or in foster care. And for me as a mum, that's the worst thing that I can imagine happening to me. So they've had that experience. And there's a huge amount of sexual violence and homelessness. And then women 
will stay with violent partners in order to get the protection that that one partner offers. This is shocking. I'm going to tell it because it's shocking and people need to know it. I have seen women who've been raped on you know, tonight in a hostel, being sent back to the same hostel the next night because there's nothing else available. Domestic violence shelters aren't accessible to women who use drugs. There is no domestic violence shelter in Ireland that will take women who use drugs. So women who are, again, it's that inverse proportionality, which women need domestic violence services the most? Women who are socially excluded. Which cannot access it? Women who are socially excluded. So it's a horrendous life, horrendous life for women. So so there's that element, which is horrendous. And and I think, again, shows us how badly we're treating people. I think as a woman, there's lots of evidence showing that women do better, get better care if their doctors are women rather than men. And I'm sure that is the same, that if I was a traveller, I would do better if I had a traveller doctor. Um, and if I'm black, I would do better. I think there is research to show that. So for me, with my Trinity educational hat on, one of the things that I'm really trying to to work really hard on with my colleagues is making sure that our students are diverse because until we have travelers and people who are black and people who've experienced homelessness and people who've had prison experiences in their families in healthcare service as doctors and researchers we won't attain that quality that we're hoping for yeah no i mean that makes perfect sense i do think actually there was a, a study recently that looked at male versus female doctors and they actually just found that the life expectancy of patients of female doctors was higher all around so if you're a man, you do better with a female than a male doctor. And if you're a woman, you do much better with a female doctor than a male doctor. This is for cardiology, I think it was for heart attacks. There's loads of loads and loads and loads of reasons. And actually, one of the things that's been on my mind this week, because of what's been in the media, is around black women's experiences of maternity care. Um, so if you read from the US, uh, there's a lot of literature showing that black women have much worse maternal outcomes, pregnancy outcomes. And it, a lot of the time, it's because their reports of pain aren't believed by the doctors looking after them. And talking to black women who live in Ireland, they've had similar experiences here. So we absolutely need to have more black women delivering maternity care why why wouldn't a doctor believe that they're in pain so the 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 perceived narrative would be that they are hysterical or complaining too much or too loud um, and that their loudness is just because they're loud and mouthy in inverted commas rather than they're experiencing pain pretty shocking and probably a lot of the time not conscious but it's not okay very frightening for black women who are you know you have to you you can't not go in to have your baby when you have to have your baby um to go into an environment which they feel is hostile you talked about a lot of different issues which we're very thankful for uh depressed by but very thankful for but i suppose i kind of wanted to ask you a kind of more general question about the state of medicine from where you're looking at it now because you're looking at it from a more societal holistic Mm -hmm. approach So, you know, medicine has always been in flux, right? We've always gone from what the latest theory is to the next to the next. I mean, you know, think about in the medieval times, we still like leech blood. In many cases, the placebo effect of that was the only thing that was working. Maybe historically, kind of coming to now, we've kind of thought of medicine in a very scientific, there's a problem, there's a solution type of way, right? Like kind of almost like a mathematical equation this equals this. But what you're saying, I think, if I'm not putting words in your mouth, is that actually it's much more complicated than that. There's a lot of different things impacting health. So with all that said, what do you think the future of medicine holds? So that's such a brilliant question. I feel, right, that we are, in some respects, at the stage of understanding social health, 
and the effects of our social environment on our biology and back again were at the stage that people were in the medieval ages when they thought it was humours that caused disease. And again, as an infectious diseases doctor, I get to work with it all the time. There was this huge explosion of knowledge once people realised there were bacteria and viruses. And before you know it, then there are antibiotics and antivirals and all amazing work. So I think we're at that stage where really we're starting to starting to understand that our social environment has big effects on our biology and to try and look at that in a, in a in a different way so rather than just focusing in on bone fractures and you know uh, cholesterol plaques that we will get to that understanding of of more social factors and there's loads of evidence from the animal world around social environments very directly determining biology look at bees for example you know there's a queen bee there are the drones and they all have the same genome they have this exactly the same genes but they're being expressed differently in relation to the social environment of the bee Um, and it's the same for fish and it's definitely then as you go into mammals way more evident and so I hadn't realized this Lydia Lynch who you should definitely interview if you haven't she's very cool she told me that in mouse cages if you have cages of male mice there's always one male mouse who is the bullied socially excluded male mouse who has his hair falling out he doesn't get food and the other mice are mean to him and he's sicker and he dies younger it doesn't happen interestingly in the female cages just saying and then in primates we have all this research showing that social rank and social experience changes gene regulation and changes immune gene expression and changes immune responses and in monkeys female monkeys if you're a top miss monkey which means that you get your fleas picked out by the other monkeys you can measure social dominance in monkeys by that which i think is so cool you can literally graph the number of fleas being picked out versus the amount of time you have to spend picking out somebody else's fleas so the dominant female monkeys have good strong antiviral immune responses and no chronic inflammation and the poor monkey who is at the bottom of the pile um is uh got poor antiviral immune responses and chronic inflammation switched on and what do I see in the women that I work with who are socially excluded I see chronic HPV carriage so they're not clearing their human papillomavirus they're ending up with cervical cancer head and neck cancer in men which is is caused by impaired immune responses to viral disease and we see aging related diseases which are related to chronic inflammation osteoporosis COPD heart disease stroke coming in at a much earlier age so I think that what we are seeing in humans is suggesting that social experience, experience of belonging, experience of shame, experience of control, I'm not sure which different psychological experiences they are, are directly affecting which genes we're transcribing, which proteins we're making and how our bodies work. And, and I think that that turns that moral argument a little bit on its head, right? So it's not just about people choosing to make bad lifestyle choices. It's about the effect that their social social status social environment has on their biology which then in turn can drive addiction so i i think then hopefully if we can understand that that may hopefully change how we organize society into a way that better matches the biology and then leads to better outcomes overall so just to i suppose talk a little bit about what you you talked about there about genes being turned on and off so i think it's like a recipe book like like i have zillions of recipe books at home but i probably cook like one percent of the recipes in them so the recipe book is your genome you can make all those proteins but you're not necessarily going to make them and then the epigenetic changes are what are you actually going to cook for dinner tonight like what dinner are you going to have on the table so your genome yes it's important because it's your recipe book but what's much more important is what are you actually going to use those which of those genes are you going to use to make things that's a really nice way of explaining it um and i may steal that 
Oh, you're so welcome. So the other thing as well, I suppose, so you're talking about this this uh, movement towards a more socially inclusive, thinking about the social a- impacts of health, you know, how we can use that for, for people who are more at risk and, and so forth. But it, it, it also is coming at a similar time when a lot of the medical research is going into these really highly specific medical practices like we're going to look at your gut microbiome and we're going to make drugs specifically for you and i may be a pessimist here but i don't imagine that going to homeless people i imagine that going to very very well off people so it it seems to me we're at almost like a crossroads a little bit where we can choose to go down the more kind of social inclusion better for everybody or we can continue down the line of the road we're kind of already on which is like the private health care only people who really don't need it as much get the best treatment yeah and i have several problems with that kind of personalized medicine approach that you're talking about one is yes at the moment it's for only those who are really wealthy and that's not fair and we know that ultimately that's not good for it's not even good for the person who is getting it I think the second problem that I have with personalized medicine is I haven't seen it deliver. There's nothing that I've seen it that I use it for clinically every day. It just hasn't lived up to the promise. And again, maybe it's because it's looking at the recipe books rather than what's being transcribed. But there doesn't seem to, you know, your genome is not, there's very few diseases that are made by one single gene, things like cystic fibrosis and and genome medicine works there, but they're few and far between. And the third problem that I would have, and you made me think of it, is those screening programs, you know, where like if you have VHI, whatever fancy VHI, you get like an ECG and your, you know, and a stress test. The evidence is actually that if you use those screening tests in groups in which the risk of somebody having that is very low, you're actually causing way more harm than you are causing good. So you come in, I stick you on an exercise treadmill, which I wouldn't normally because you're a young, healthy man, but you've paid for it. So I'm going to do it. And then you have some slight abnormality that it's there. So then I have to do an angiogram. And when you have an angiogram, your risk of having a stroke is one in a hundred. So suddenly I've given you a stroke for something that you didn't need in the first place. Um, And if you look in the US where they throw huge amounts of medicine and investigation at those who have private health um, cover. The outcomes are actually much worse. So I have a friend who's a relatively right-wing economist, and he says the one thing you should never, ever, ever privatise is healthcare because you're incentivizing it to be less effective, if that makes sense. So wholeheartedly, I, I don't think that's where we should be going. And if we step back and, you know, who says that health is just managed by tablets and surgery? Like, that's not a law of physics. So everything affects our health, climate, our, you know, urban environment, schooling, all of those things. And they should be weighted equally. You shouldn't be putting all the money into one thing because it comes in a bottle and not giving any money to something that's much more effective because it's a teacher. Uh, so I think we, again, it's that human blindness. Like we think in very weird ways. We're strange animals. That we are. Um, okay, absolute last question. I feel like you've kind of touched on a lot of things that you think are thought about the wrong way. But is there a basic misconception with what you work with that you think particularly needs to be corrected? Yes, I think we overestimate individuals' individual choice. So we're much more driven by our peer group and what's around us than our, we think we make the decisions, but actually it's the advertising for McDonald's and the availability of the fizzy drinks in the shop and the fact that there isn't a pathway to to walk on and that all of those affect our obesity much more than any individual choice. So I think we overestimate individuals' ability to change 
uh, their own behaviours and we neglect looking at the, the much more communal environmental aspects. So we're all sheeple? We're all sheeple. I look at masks. Like, it's so funny. Everybody wears masks. We'll all wear masks, you know, or the smoking ban. Like, I love it because you can kind of weaponize it. Like, the smoking ban is brilliant. I never thought it would work. You're too young. But I was around when people used to smoke in pubs. And uh, suddenly overnight, everybody stopped. Great. Listen, thank you so much for your time and for making us all so angry today. Anytime. Uh, is there anywhere that people can go to find you shouting at the world? Yes, although I mostly retweet other people's shouts. So I am on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Cleonani, C-L-I-O-N-A, my first name, and N-I. Um, and that's probably the, the easiest place. And then I'm also on the internet on the Trinity website um, for emails and that. And always interested to chat to other people who are full of rage. Brilliant. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. That's everything for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you would like to find out more about us or Pint of Science Ireland, follow at Pint of Science IE on Twitter and Instagram and find us wherever you get your podcasts. Kleena can be found on Twitter at Kleena N-I. That's at C-L-I-O-N-A-N-I. This podcast series is produced by Oldest Productions, bringing you more on science, society and all things in between through multimedia. The episode was made with Aneder Nagudi on sound and editing, research assistance from Aneder Nagudi and Daniel Giffney, and me as your host. Thanks to the co-directors of Pine of Science Ireland for 2023, Ashley Gorman and Kevin Mercurio, as well as SFI, and thanks again to Clean and Nikialik for joining us on this episode. Pint of Science Ireland is a part of the global initiative, Pint of Science, which aims to bring the research to you, the people that fund it. We'll see you next month. This has been Peter Labrocki-Cox. Goodbye. Until next time.